0: All right, so on for argument is now Hoagland versus Duke University Health, number 23546.
1: You ready? I am, Your Honor. Thank you. Please begin. Good afternoon. May it please the court. My name is Anthony May, and I represent the plaintiff-appellant, Dr. Michael Hoagland, in this appeal. If I may, I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. This case is about defendant's rushed decision to terminate Dr. Hoagland from Duke's emergency medical residency program. 72 hours after receiving requests for accommodations for disability-related accommodation, and its decision to execute that determination four business days later. What followed was a sham appeal process, deviating from Duke's own policies, that was set for one specific reason, to affirm that termination. As of February 2017, Dr. Hoagland, according to defendant and his supervisor, Dr. Broder, had quote, all of the skills he will ultimately need as an independent faculty member. That changed on March 21st, 2017. Dr. Baroda receives an email from Duke's Disability Management System that says Dr. Hoagland is entitled to accommodations. He forwards that email to Dr. Hoagland's supervisor, Dr. Kat Burry, asks if she can implement those. 24 hours later, Dr. Burry does not respond with an affirmative. What she responds with is a two-page email stating that she questions the needs for those accommodations and that she doesn't know anything about his medical needs, but she launches into a litany of complaints that she admits she's known for a long time and asks that Dr. Broder take those into consideration. 24 hours later, Dr. Broder confers with Dr. Um, David Turner and they decide without any sort of independent investigation, Dr. Hoagland has committed multiple policy violations and on March 24th, the Director of Graduate Medical Education, Kathleen Kuhn, emails Dr. Turner and Duke's counsel and says, sounds like we're terminating him, let's not do it on a Friday. Four business days goes by, March 30th, Dr. Hoagland is terminated. Reversal and remand is warranted in this case, Your Honors, for two reasons. First, at this stage, at the summary judgment stage, North Carolina law is clear that all facts and all inferences must be drawn in the light most favorable to Dr. Hoagland. And from drawing those inferences, a reasonable jury could conclude that defendants both materially breached their contractual obligation to afford Dr. Hoagland due process and that it's post hoc justifications, many many of which were known to defendants long before the termination, but only appeared as justifications immediately after the request for accommodations that that was pretext for discrimination. And the second issue, Your Honor, is that the trial court erred in failing to award fees under Rule 37 um, after Dr. Hoagland successfully moved to compel certain document protections, including that fateful email from Dr. Kuhn confirming that on March 24th, the decision had already been made without the statutorily required explanation. And I'll begin, Your Honors, with the breach of contract issue in this case. As a threshold matter, the trial court erred by finding that defendant's employment contract with Duke, that section 5.1 of that contract, somehow prohibited Dr. Hoagland from receiving any sort of third income outside of Duke. What the plain language, and what this court is well aware, when we are interpreting contracts, we first look to the plain language of the contract. What that language clearly and unambiguously states is that that obligation is Duke's obligation to compensate plaintiff. Nothing about plaintiff's ability to receive income from any other source. And so the court incorrectly construed that provision and found that it had to be construed against the plaintiff. Well, that's not what the plain language says. And even if the plain language could somehow be argued to appear that way, any ambiguity has to be construed against Duke, the drafters of that very uh, very provision. And further, if there's any ambiguity as to what the parties intended by that provision, then that's ultimately for a jury to decide, and that's under Shankle versus Harmon. Second, Your Honors, what the court failed to do in this case was to find that the language that required Duke to provide certain due process protections if it was going to implement adverse corrective action, i.e. termination, that it failed to follow the processes, as the contract language says, as set forth in the corrective action hearing procedures, or what I will refer to today as the CAP. Um, what the cap does is it provides significant due process protections for residents, employees, in a health program who are at the tail end of their training career, who have put hours and hours and hours and money into their program. It sets forth specific obligations that a defendant, an institution, an employer must do before it can essentially ruin a person's life. And that is why those are so important. That's why that language as set forth in and as this court has held, in several instances, when we're interpreting context, when that language appears, that incorporates a third party document. And there's no question um, that, as a matter of North Carolina law, the language must clearly and unambigu- unambiguously, um, or expressly incorporate, I'm sorry, not clearly and unambiguously, but expressly incorporate those third party documents. That's what we have here.
0: Well, the, the, the party on the other side says that, in fact, the. The terms don't expressly incorporate those procedural, the procedural manual. If I look at page, you know, what is this? <laughs> 15 of their brief, they, they list a litany of cases that say the opposite.
1: Well, in those cases, Your Honor, they don't deal with the very specific language we have forth here. So what Your Honors will notice in none of those cases is, is it found that the as set forth language doesn't incorporate. It's just, they're just saying, well, unless you essentially say subject to, then nothing can be incorporated. That's not what North Carolina law is. Subject to is not a magic word. It doesn't require you using that language. And so I would point this court to the Suplee versus Miller, or specifically the Burgess versus Jim Walters case, where this court found that in an arbitration agreement, the language said, as set forth in the attached document. The court said, that would have incorporated, but you didn't attach the document. Here, we have a very different uh, scenario, where it says, as set forth in, the corrective action hearing procedures, and then supplies a link to those very procedures.
0: I think their argument is that, that if you back up a little bit and they say corrective action may
1: be taken by those procedures, <coughs> talk to me about that. Thank you, Your Honor. That language, correct. We have to look at the language of the contract. What does that may modify? So if, that the, 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 I'm sorry, that the institution may take adverse corrective action. It has that option. But when it exercises that discretion, It must do it as set forth in the corrective action hearing procedures. And to the extent that there's any ambiguity about that, Your Honors, again, going back to North Carolina law, if that is ambiguous, if it's questionable as to whether Duke decided to afford these uh, sort of due process protections, which the accreditation council that accredits Duke requires then that's up for a jury to decide. And let a jury resolve that ambiguity. Let a jury decide and hear parole evidence as to what the intents of the parties were. Because certainly Dr. Hoagland didn't expect that three months shy of graduation, he could have been terminated for reasons that he did not believe were appropriate. He couldn't have been terminated while uh, individuals essentially worked together while Duke was provided counsel throughout the entire process while he was told that he couldn't actually give a substantive review, that the hearing panel wasn't going to hear a substantive review. All of those things, he what his intent was was to be given a fair shot by an, uh, by an impartial tribunal. That was not afforded here. And so at the very least, that ambiguity should be resolved by a jury, and whether those material, whether those provisions in the cap were material to the contract, whether they were breached Again, Charlotte Motor Speedway is very clear. Versus Tyndall, materiality is ordinarily an issue for a jury to resolve. And I think one other North Carolina case that is instructive here is the Crump versus Board of Education, Hickory uh, administrative school case. And what that case has said, and that was an employment issue with the school board, doesn't matter if you've got one person making the decision or 20. If there's any indication that the ultimate decision is influenced by an improper procedure, that's a jury should be able to decide whether that's material and whether there was a breach and to what extent remedies should flow.
0: There seems to be some disagreement about whether uh, he was an employee or whether he was a student or whether it was hybrid and what kind of actions can be taken in an academic setting for an
1: academic reason. Well, there can't be a genuine dispute on that, Your Honors, because we have the plain language of the contract. Titled an employment contract and it was signed by both of the parties so to the extent that there's any ambiguity um, that would just be a misreading of the plain language of the contract and that's what's important here your honor because I think what the trial court pointed to was cases involving undergraduate in, undergraduate individuals where there's not an employment situation and that's where the trial court says well I have to give deference to academic institutions if they're implementing their you know policies or if they're terminating I have to give deference but those are all cases involving undergraduate individuals, not cases where you have an employment contract that expressly sets forth the, uh, the employment. And that a lot of that, Your Honor, I think is addressed in the CIR, CIR amicus brief. It talks first and foremost where residents are employees. They're not students, not, you know, not first and foremost. And that deference, Your Honors, um, is widely important in this case for yet a second reason, because the trial court sort of conflated that deference. And then, turning to Dr. Hoagland's Americans with Disability Act's claims, said that, essentially, I can't second guess what an institution would do in terms of their academic um, decisions. That, it said that under North Carolina law, that's the law. That's not true. In fact, neither the trial court nor defendants have cited a single case in North Carolina law saying that when uh, an institution decides to terminate an employee, whether it's hybrid or not, that you have to give deference. And in fact, what the Fourth Circuit and what the Middle Middle District of North Carolina have both said in Halpern versus Wake Forest and Dickinson versus UNC, is that courts in fact, quote, must take care not to allow academic decisions to disguise truly discriminatory requirements. And so that does away with any sort of academic deference in this case. And in fact, cases that defendants cited In the trial court, Neal versus UNC is one of them, says the same thing. When we turn to pretext, Your Honors, and here it's important to note that the trial court found that plaintiff had established a prima facie case of discrimination. That was not questioned. We found that he, and that's again, not a high bar. That plaintiff established the prima facie case, it credited Duke's, uh, under the McDonnell Douglas shifting framework, credited Duke's explanations for that, And then it was only on the pretext, where the trial court found, because it was affording academic deference, that there was an evidence of pretext. Respectfully, Your Honors, I disagree. And there are several indicia of pretext that courts have specifically found can indicate that a jury could find pretext under certain circumstances. And so we can start, Your Honors, um, one thing I do wanna note, by the way, before we get into the actual facts, But under the O'Neill versus Henderson City case, which is a Western District of uh, North Carolina case, ultimately, whether any of the justifications for termination ultimately are true or not, is not the issue. It is, if evidence shows that defendants ignored contrary evidence, or that they failed to properly investigate, that is probative of pretext. That's an important point. Similarly, under Arthur versus Pet Derry, An employee doesn't have to refute every negative remark, every justification. Essentially, you don't have to both strike your honors. You hit a couple pins, maybe a jury could find pretext. And so we have to look at the totality of the evidence, look at the totality of factors at play. So we'll start first and foremost with the prima facie case. So as uh, Warch versus Ohio casually informs us under the Fourth Circuit, there's no impermeable impermeable barrier between looking at the evidence that establishes a prima facie case and the evidence that would go to pretext. And there are at least three factors under the prima facie case that the court found that are instructive on pretext. Again, let's start with that temporal proximity. Under Calgill versus First Data, temporal proxim- uh, proximity, quote, weighs heavily in favor of finding a genuine dispute on causation. <coughs> and under Hallberg versus Michelin, another Fourth Circuit case, there was a genuine dispute on pretext due solely to the proximity of time between the request requested accommodation and the termination, in that case, 21 days. Here, three days the decision was made, in that March 24th email, Dr. Kuhn says, I don't want to terminate him on a Friday. We'll wait four business days and terminate him on the 30th." So nine days total to execute that termination. That, Your Honors, I think, alone would justify remand and reversal to a jury to determine pretext, but there's much more than that. For example, the shifting rationales that we have in this case. That Dr. Broder testified under oath that prior to receiving that accommodation request, there was no consideration of terminating Dr. Hoagland. What happens in the intervening time before termination is contemplated? The request for accommodations. And Dr. Burry's email launching into these litany of complaints that she had known for some time. Additionally, Your Honor, we can look at the purported justifications for the termination. One of those, later on, being that Dr. Hoagland received patient complaints. Well, Dr. Hoagland did receive patient complaints, as many residents do. That's part of the territory, and in fact, in November of 2015, Dr. Broder says, look, I'm sharing, the, everybody gets patient complaints, I'm sharing these with you for your own knowledge. The five complaints at issue, two of them were from December 2015. 15 months before the termination. Two more were from August and October 2017, or 2016, I apologize. Again, months before the termination. One was in March of 2017, a week before the termination, in which Dr. Hoagland explained what happened, and Dr. Broder on March 19th says, I'm just sharing this for your personal knowledge and development. What changed from March 19th to March 22nd? And what could a reasonable juror find changed? The request for accommodations. That, again, is indicia of pretext. But there's more. And when we look then under Calgill versus, again, Calgill, what is especially relevant in the context of pretext is comparators. And so is there evidence of other similarly situated individuals in the program with similarly situated uh, alleged violations that were treated differently? because they don't have a disability and Dr. Hoagland does? And in this case, the answer is yes. There is at least one comparator who was alleged of violating professional standards, the social media policy, and accused of not being truthful. That was an individual who wore a sexually explicit Halloween costume, bearing Duke's insignia, posting it on the internet, had lied about his ability to uh, care for patients to his supervisors, his, his attendings, and was he terminated? No. Was he terminated within nine days after learning of this? Absolutely not. He was given multiple opportunities to remediate and ultimately didn't get terminated, as Duke sets forth in his brief, but was permitted to resign. It's a stark contrast there. That stark contrast is just one of several indicia that a jury could find. And again, we're not saying this is true or not, but could a jury reasonably find that that's indicia of pretexts? there was a further evidence of comparators when we looked to Dr. Kuhn's testimony that she says, yes, there were other people in the program who were given multiple opportunities. They were given consecutive uh, routine corrective actions after policy violations. Did Dr. Hoagland get that? No. Another very important thing uh, when we're talking about pretext is the diversion from the from Duke's own policies. And so even if this court were to find that those Uh, cap provisions were not contractually obligated, they still are relevant for the ADA discrimination. Why? Set forth in Doe versus Morgan State, evidence indicating that a defendant failed to follow established procedures um, helps plaintiff to raise a genuine dispute on pretext. And so what were those things that Duke deviated? Or what could a jury find were deviations from their own policies? Well, let's first start with adequate, fair and adequate notice. What the evidence shows, Your Honor, is that the decision was made on March 24th. Dr. Kuhn says, let's not fire him on a Friday. March 28th, Dr. Baroto brings Dr. Hoagland in and says, is there anything you have to tell me? Dr. Hoagland has no idea what he's talking about. He's not shown any sort of evidence. He's not asked point blank, are you doing X, Y, and Z? Are you aware of these policies that prevent you from doing this? Nothing like that occurs.
0: Did he have any prior, I guess, meetings or... um
1: reviews that were negative? So there were some, it is absolutely true that Dr. Hogan was on a routine corrective action plan. That routine corrective action plan was for some minor clinical performance issues. That was it. Nothing about any sort of alleged policy violations, nothing further than that. And so, and that is, again, an op- where we see other individuals who were on routine corrective action for things, got second chances. These were policy violations, In again, in those contexts, There's not this intervening request for accommodations. That intervening request for accommodations comes, the next week he asks him this vague general question, which there's a just genuine dispute of material fact as to what actually transpired, and a jury may believe uh, Duke's position that he gave him enough opportunity, but a jury very equally could not believe that. And then two days later, Dr. Hoagland is summoned yet again. He's handed a piece of paper, and he's told he's terminated. No questions asked, see you later. Three months shy of graduation, that fair—that uh, that is not what the corrective action hearing procedures uh, permit. It's one deviation, but there are several others. A fair and impartial hearing by a neutral arbiter. Under the cap, the uh, there's a review process first by which a clinical review panel is supposed to review. That is supposed to be chaired by an individual of the medical staff. What was clear from counsel for Duke, who has no right to participate in this hearing whatsoever under the cap, when well, she says at the very outset, she was there to run the whole show.
0: But isn't, isn't that evidence that she was there to administratively run the show? Isn't that what the other side is arguing? That she was making sure that all the processes and procedures
1: were being followed correctly. Sure, and that might be one reasonable inference, Your Honor. But then she goes on to say, and also by the way, I'm limiting this to a process only review. And Dr. Hoagland scratches his head and says, That's not what the cap says. It's supposed to be a substantive and a process review. And she says, well, that's what it's going to be. She shuts that down immediately. And how do we know that it was a process-only review? Well, we look to the panel's decision. Yet another cap provision requires that the panel issue a written statement within 14 days that contains its rationale for upholding the termination. That decision contains no rationale whatsoever. It is essentially a two-paragraph, I believe, two-paragraph, letter that mirrors identically the template they were sent. There's no discussion about the individual policy violations, no consideration of what the substantive evidence showed, whether they believed or didn't believe certain evidence, or whether they wholesale credited Dr. Broder's presentation and nothing that Dr. Hoagland gave. None of that is contained in yet another failure to to follow their own internal procedures. And then what we have, Your Honors, is this final appellate process. And there's a a process by which uh, Dr. Hoagland was allowed to have his termination reviewed by the Director of Graduate Medical Education. That that, uh, letter was issued on in May of 2017 by Dr. Kuhn. And she had already decided and agreed in an email on uh, March 24th, 2017, that she agreed with the decision to terminate without knowing any of the facts. That, Your Honor, and that doesn't even include all of the things that Dr. Kuhn did leading up to writing that letter. She initially advised Dr. Broder about what to submit to the hearing panel. She sat in on the hearing panel. When she was asked to review, the cap is also very clear. You're confined to the four corners of the submissions by the parties. She admitted that she went beyond those four corners, looked for additional evidence, and she says, well, my interpretation of the cap is I have discretion to do that. Well, if that's what your interpretation is, that's one thing. A jury might see it differently. And if a jury sees it differently, that is yet again indicia of pretext. And so we have all of that, but Your Honors, there's more. right? So under the law and under the Fourth Circuit, there's a cat's paw theory. And the Mosier versus MCC Outdoor case really explains that, Your Honors. And what it says is that when a supervisor essentially coaxes Uh, a decision-maker into making a discriminatory decision. That can then be imbued upon the institution. Here, Dr. Burry, if you read that email, a reasonable jury could say, this is nothing but animus. And what she says specifically to Dr. Broder is, I hope you'll take these things into consideration. And he does. 24 hours later, he decides, without investigation, these are policy violations. Dr. Hoagland's going to be terminated. That's what he decides. There is significant evidence in the record from which a jury could find that she was, in fact, a supervisor, that she did play an important role in this program, and so the cat's paw theory is yet another example. But let's talk again, then, about the seven justifications. And again, under the Fourth Circuit, you don't have to knock all these pins down. But of the seven justifications given for Dr. Hoagland's termination, four of which a jury could reasonably find are actually completely false. First being that there was an alleged HIPAA violation. They claim that Dr. Uh, Hoagland violated HIPAA by putting a video of him working on a patient online. It was a fictitious video that had been up that he didn't put up. There was a video that he used to propose to his wife, and he immediately asked them to take it down. Dr. Broder testified, well, I don't really know if it was a HIPAA violation or not. And importantly, what a jury could think is, did they do any work to find out who this patient was so they could notify him that a HIPAA violation occurred? No evidence in the record that that happened. So did they genuinely believe that violation, or was this something to mask a discriminatory intent? I don't know, Your Honors, but a jury is uniquely poised to decide that motive and intent.
0: Be- before you go on to yes. the rest of your list, uh, can you address that, uh, the argument that Hogan's not a qualified individual with a disability?
1: Yes, so first and foremost, Your Honor, um, that is simply a misapplication of what the law is. Um, and what the trial court found here, and while I know this is a de novo review, the trial court found that prima facie cases met. Prima facie case being he's a qualified individual who can do the job with or without a disability. And in fact, he had displayed that for the first, the whole second year he was in the program. No issues. Leading up to the termination, again, routine corrective action. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Broder says, never contemplated adverse corrective action until the disability related accommodation request was made. And so all of that is evidence from which a jury could find, when, from what the trial court correctly find, that he is a qualified individual. And he excelled in law school. Um, and with that, Your Honors, um, I see that I'm going, running into my rebuttal time, so I will preserve the rest for uh, rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
2: May it please the court. My is Bob Saar. I'm with the Ogletree Deacons Law Firm. I represent Duke University. The uh, defendant uh, appellee here. That's my co-counsel, Jefferson Wisnett. I'd also like to introduce my clients that are here today. Uh, Dr. Broder, the Program Director of the Emergency Medicine uh, Department at Duke. The department here at issue is here. Uh, Dr. Kathy Kuhn, sitting next to him there in the the purple, bluish jacket. she is the director of graduate medical education uh, at Duke, and you have heard her name talked about for a few minutes. The last person I want to in, uh, introduce as a surprise. Uh, my wife is here after 30 years of, uh, of being married to a lawyer here. Um, this first time she's actually seen me do something lawyery. So I asked her to come. and Our schedules aligned. The stars were good, so pressure's on for me. Um, uh, not really, Your Honor, because the court should clearly affirm the decision from uh, Judge Ofalu. In Durham Superior Court. Um, Let let me start with the beginning of this. This is a case that really is down to two legal issues. Was there a breach of contract? Uh, Was there a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act? Um, Both are resoundingly answered that there's no violation of either law. Uh, Dr. Hoagland was a third year um, uh, emergency medicine resident uh, trainee. It's a trainee position. Uh, Judge Collins, you asked, is this employment? Is it, uh, is it academic? Is it student? What is it? Uh, it's both, and that's what the, I think the US Supreme Court and the other cases that we cited, a lot of these arise in a federal context, but those cases have said that it's, it's really both here. You've got an element of employment, but we know that this isn't, it isn't like actual physician employment. They're there in the residency program to receive training. Except for the training, they wouldn't be there. So that's why some of these standards that we express in the briefs come into play, such as the the deference to academic decision-making being an important uh, kind of, uh, you know, touchstone principle to to legal evaluation of decisions at universities. In the case that we cited dealing in the healthcare industry specifically, dentistry schools, residency programs, uh, other ones there, all say it's particularly important in the healthcare field that you give deference to the decision of the, uh, the, the people running the program, they're the only ones qualified to do it, um, they, you know, and it's important to public health. Uh, but he was there, and he was struggling to meet expectations. Uh, he was on a routine corrective action. Uh, the, the, this is all, Everything I'm going to tell you is undisputed in the record. Um, the, so I stand by every citation that we've got in the brief, um, if for no other reasons than they were checked three times beforehand, and I did it again over the past few days. Uh, I mention that because I haven't ever had a case where there have been so many uh, disagreements about what is written in black and white. To me it's very clear look in black and white. Uh, But he was also um, uh, undergoing scrutiny from what in the program is called the uh, the CCC, the Clinical Competence Committee, and there's a different one at each level of residency. But they were in the process of developing a higher level action plan for him because of clinical performance shortcomings and that's all important here because certainly he was not terminated for clinical performance shortcomings They're on a pathway to take uh, Let's let's just use my words and say commonly a level one type of warning to a level two type of warning No requirement to go from level one to two. That's just purely to illustrate what's going on here um, but they were going to that and then all of a sudden boom there's completely unexpected uh, unasked for uh, the evidence that is brought to the attention of the program director by one of Dr. Hoagland's peers. And so he's got to take a look at that and act on it. And it was so obvious that it took no time virtually, I mean this wasn't weeks of decision making, figure out what to do, very quickly it, it said so this is someone who doesn't have the professional qualities that we have at Duke that we expect our residents to have. And I'll explain why that judgment was made and why that makes sense, but that's the timing of it. He was on that pathway uh, in the in the residency program to begin with. It, your residency at Duke is a three-year program. Some, year, some schools have it as a four-year program. It's really a small program at Duke within the entire fabric of GME. Um, uh, Let me talk to you about the contract. Tackle claim number one first. The contract here, Documentary Exhibit 19 and the following pages, is a contract of course written by Duke and it vests enormous discretion to Duke. It's spelled out there in the contract. Some of the cases that I cited have similar contracts that were at issue there and they talk about the the contracts uh, explaining what trainee responsibilities are, the obligations set forth in the contract on Dr. Hoagland, and then responsibilities spelled out to the, the, the medical program um, here. The trainee responsibilities are clear. He's got to obey in section two, it's called trainee responsibilities. He's got to obey and adhere to the medical staff bylaws and corrective action and hearing procedures. It says, importantly, he has to adhere to those. There's nothing in this agreement that says Duke has to appear, adhere to those. They did, that's, that's beside the point. But as a matter of contract law, it places the burden on him to adhere to those, not to Duke. Duke's language, is, as you noted or said by opposing counsel, says they may do it.
0: So corrective action may be taken by the hospital, blah, 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 as set forth in the corrective action and hearing procedures. So it's your contention that the may, is if they decide they're going to take action, they can do it however they want.
2: That's correct, Your Honor. They can, legally speaking, they can.
0: But the may Do they? No. ...if corrective action may be
2: taken. As say. set forth. That's correct.
0: So you're reading it all together.
2: A- absolutely. And I'm reading it in, in connection with the case law of North Carolina, which says that to, it, when there's a unilaterally prom- promulgated policy or handbook or operational procedure, from an employer or from an academic institution, because a lot of these cases are are, are there in the, the college system, um, unless it is expressly and explicitly, is the language in several of the cases, explicitly committed that the uh, the employer or the university is contractually obligated to follow those. There's no contractual obligation to do it. That doesn't that no, that's a, that's an important distinction, of course, because we're in court. Uh, This is a legal claim. We're looking at what the the law of contract says. Aside from the point, of course Duke's going to follow those. And they did here, and I'll explain the facts on that, which are undisputed as well. Um, But uh, aside from that and all these responsibilities that are spelled out, it says he's got the responsibility to adhere to all the policies and practice of the institution. He's got the obligation to participate fully in in all the academic offerings of the the institution. He's got the obligation to use his best efforts to uh, provide a courteous and respectful attitude towards patients, colleagues, employees, and others at Duke all the time. All those are called into question by the undisputed facts that I'll explain. He's got to, in Section 2.11, obey and adhere to uh, all the requirements there at the hospital. In Section 5, this is the financial part uh, that opposing counsel spoke about a moment ago, um, I, I do not agree that, that that is limited to Duke's obligation to pay him fees. That's not what it says. <laughs> what it says is the hospital shall provide the trainee with financial support and benefits in the following areas as described. Uh, the stipend payable monthly, financial support, stipend and fringe benefits at a uniform level for all trainees in each year of graduate medical education program. And it says except as permitted in section 4.4, that's right above it where it deals with moonlighting, which means getting paid to do medical work in a different department. That's what that that means. Except as provided there. So except for authorized provision of medical services, this, so the, the payment from Duke, shall be the trainee's sole source of compensation except for approved and authorized extracurricular activities, the trainees shall not accept any other fee um, of any kind for services. Now, of course, why am I pointing that out? It's because it's undisputed in the record uh, several times. I don't think there's any dispute here at all. In fact, well, there is not. Um, that while Dr. Hoagland was in his third year of residency and earlier, he was actually doing some side business work. Um, this all occurred back in 2017. Uh, Uber, Turo, Airbnb, they weren't as, as commonly known as they are now. Certainly those businesses and services have grown, but Dr. Hoagland was using those, and he was being paid fees for that. That's all in the record, whether it was driving for Uber, whether it was renting his car out, whether it was renting his apartment out. Um, that clearly violates this provision of the contract. Section 8, Judge Collins, you've mentioned this. It's titled, Corrective Action, Dismissal, and Suspension. It says, during the term of this agreement, the trainee's appointment is conditioned upon satisfactory performance of all program elements by the trainee. Well, who's the decider of that? The decider of that are the program leaders. It's Dr. Broder, it's Dr. Kuhn, it's others and what did they decide here they decided that his performance didn't meet the standards whether it was for violation of the contract which is undisputed or whether it was for um, other things that were spelled out there in the dismissal letter and the letter to the internal appeals committee can
0: you address the amicus brief the argument that there should be due process requirements
2: um, If if that union was writing the laws that everybody had to adhere to, there would be, but they they don't get the power to write the laws that we have to adhere to. There is no union. There is no requirement here of of some sort of due process, whatever whatever that may mean. Um, Now, there is, as far as Duke, in terms of having its graduate medical education program accredited, there's an accrediting body that says there must be due process. Would you like to know how, how detailed that explanation is? In, the, in their materials, it says there must be due process. <laughs> That's it. So what, uh, what due process may mean to one person is certainly different from another. And we know from being lawyers, there's all kinds of litigation on what due process is. Judge Collins, Dr. Hoagland, we could all be so lucky as to get the due process that he got in this case. Because when, uh, when, his, his, when his bad behavior was shown, and this is the, the renting the car. It's the using the Duke fatigue shuttle while he's got his car rented out, which is admitted in the record that's disputed in the in in the reply brief, I believe. But look at the sites to what I cited to. Uh, it's there. He admitted, he was asked at the appeals hearing, did you use the um, did you use the uh, the fatigue shuttle when you rented your car out? And he said, yes. Um, you're using a service that is provided for residents that are on call that are too fatigued to to drive home safely as a matter of your own convenience. Not only does that show some some ethical concerns, I think, to most people who would look at it, certainly a physician, but it shows that you're using a resource that's there to be provided to people who really need it. You're doing it for your own convenience to make money. The same thing with sleeping in the call rooms. A call room is pretty self-explanatory to At least to me, no medical training here, but a call room is for people who are fatigued because they're on call. Um, The undisputed testimony here is in his program at this level, they're not even on call. They don't take call as a third year of the residency program there. He's using those rooms, again, using that resource when somebody else could be using it because he was renting out his apartment. I guess in a vacuum, these could all seem like very, very small things. And you could say, and I know Dr. Hoagland certainly had an explanation for each of these things, which largely was, I didn't think it was any big deal uh, when I questioned him about it. Um, And you could say, well, you know, okay. But what does the law tell us about decision making, both in academic circumstances and under the employment law paradigm, because we've got an ADA claim here. Under the academic decision-making paradigm, all those cases I cite to talk about deference to the institution to make a judgment on what meets their criteria. So there may be other institutions that would say, you know, these things aren't a big deal. It's not a big deal that in, the, in his uh, endorsements of products, which are all in the record, uh, he says he's a Duke uh, emergency medicine physician when actually he's a resident, he's not a a physician there. I'd say that's little. That shouldn't matter. It Shouldn't matter that he's, he's uh, using other the property and resources that are devoted to somebody, uh, somebody who actually needs them. Um, it doesn't matter that he's creating a video that looks like he's treating a patient while wearing his Duke white jacket there for all time. Mean, it was a nicely done video. It looked real. Um, uh, maybe that would be no big deal, but to Duke, it is a big deal. <clears throat> because when Duke puts an imprimatur that someone has graduated from its residency program and has that certification going forward for the rest of their career, Duke stands behind it. Duke wants to stand behind every single resident that comes into the program. It takes a lot to take you, take you out of that program. It doesn't look good for the program. That's, that's all on the record. This is not my, my suggestion on what it does. Um, this was not a win. It was not something anybody wanted to have happen. Not Dr. Hoagland, certainly not Duke. But they're entitled to make that judgment. Now, under the ADA paradigm, one of the principles- Can we just go back for a second? You were gonna tell us about what due process he did receive. Oh, sure, yeah, I'd love to. So the due process he did did receive was that, uh, of course, the initial decision, Dr. Broder didn't make it in a vacuum. He talked to colleagues about it, and they said, yeah, this, you gotta move forward with termination. Um, he met with him. And he did, he did not say, have you been doing these things? He put it to a higher level test, which is, which is I think, what we want to expect of our physicians. Uh, people are going to take care of us and need to be honest with us. Is there anything that's interfering with your training? So what did that put him on notice of? When, when that question was asked, is there anything interfering in, uh, with your training, what did that put him on notice of? Yeah. Notice, but, notice, and right to be heard. Due process, right? Yeah. No, notice that there's a question, and this is just the first step of the due process. But does that, that's it? You, 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 he asks a question. If he says nothing, what, where's the due process? Yeah. That's not. This is part of the due process, Your Honor. This first step. There are three or four more steps, and I'll get to those. This is just step one. But I asked him, and the the response is uh, maybe in Dr. Hoagland's mind. The response was, well, there was nothing interfering with my 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 performance or my training. But he said, it's not like I have a secret job or anything. And of course, these things do seem like jobs to me, renting out your apartment, your car, those types of things. Um, So he gets the the dismissal letter. He appeals it. Here's where levels of due process kick in. He gets to submit everything to a panel of five independent decision makers, leaders of other programs there at Duke who don't, don't know anything about this, and then has a actual hearing, where Dr. Broder presents his grounds for making decisions, his his thoughts on this, and Dr. Hoagland presents his. That that's that's about as big a due process as anybody could ask for. But even and then they make a decision.
3: Well, at the beginning of that panel yes, hearing, doesn't Ms. Jacobs say, you know, I want to lay the Spell out the ground rules for this. This is a process review. It's not a substantive review of the program or the actual decision. It's a review of the process by which the decision was made. Doesn't that kind of limit the uh, evidence that he's going to be able to present?
2: There there was no limitation on evidence. Nobody, you know, there were no objections to anything. The panel chair, who was the director of the neurology program, didn't limit anything in any way. I think both sides had a, a certain amount of time. Somebody kept the time, but no, Von Jacobs was there to the extent anybody listened to her. um, I'm not sure they would know what that means. But doesn't
0: that actually limit it right off the bat? There wasn't any objection because nothing was was offered.
3: And she says it's not a substantive review.
2: That's what she said. You're exactly right. I do not believe that limited at all. The only testimony that we have from the hearing committee members said they reviewed all the evidence substantively about what happened and about how the decision was made. That's the, only, that's the only evidence about what the panel actually looked at and determined.
3: And speaking of the panel, did it send its written decision including a discussion of the rationale for the decision that was made within 14 days?
2: It, it did, Your Honor. So the, I think that the procedures don't set forth, you know, this needs to be a six page discussion of all the evidence, finding facts, making conclusions of law. This is not a court proceeding. This is a, we'll call it, you know, in in jargon, a due process review. Does, is what happened, does it make sense? Does it make sense to people who know about making these types of judgments about physicians at Duke? And it did. Uh, now, how does the opinion contain the, uh, the decision, contain the rationale? Well, The difference is, uh, number one, it was using the form that the department prepared. So I think as the keeper and developer of the procedures, certainly Duke prepares a form that fits the intent of the procedures that they they drew up. But secondly, what what would not be a a decision with uh, an explanation there? It would simply be like a jury verdict form that says approved, reversed.
3: But how does that give you the rationale? for the decision? Well,
2: the rationale says that they listened to the evidence and drew a conclusion about what should happen. That is a rationale. It doesn't spell it out granularly saying, we decided that the use of this, misuse of this property is grounds for separation. We decided that this amounts to unsatisfactory performance. Um, that, that's, that's not there, but that's not required. I think it's important for this panel to to also appreciate that, of course, accepting the argument, which would be novel, it's not supported by any precedent, um, that those procedures form a contractual commitment will completely turn the law of North Carolina on its head. Employment at will does no longer exist. Any – think about all the things that an employer says that it certainly may – hope to comply with you'll get a review at the end of your 90 day probationary period
3: I thought this wasn't supposed to be just about employment this was about the academic part of it
2: well it, it bleeds into both because the case law says the same rule in both settings which is that unless you have committed explicitly to form a contractual binding commitment with an employee here a trainee but it's an employment agreement that unless you have done that, it's not an enforceable contract. So any decision that undoes that here completely sets employment law on its head. And I'm saying employment law because I practice employment law most of the time. And this is employment. It's just that hybrid uh, employment and training. Um, but it, it it means that any unilaterally, uh, unilaterally issued policy procedure statement by an employer becomes binding. Um, and that—that's not our law. What Dr. Hoagland is asking is that we really second-guess the decision-making here. That's it. I mean, he—he got, had he got a hearing where he was able to present all the evidence that he wanted. That—that um, de- that decision at the hearing, again, back to due process, was then reviewed by Dr. Kuhn afterwards. She attended the hearing. Her testimony is then, she didn't attend the, the deliberations. There's no evidence that she did that. She didn't. That was to the panel. But Dr. Kuhn, the head of the program then, when he appealed to her after the others had said his, his conduct warranted separation from the program, she listened to the tape again. She testified that. I listened to the recording of the hearing. I reviewed the evidence. I asked both sides for more evidence. In fact, the record shows that she asked Dr. Hoagland twice. Is there anything else you want to submit? Please do. And she looked at it and she made the judgment that separation for the program was the appropriate uh, step here. She could have changed it, she could have reversed it, she could have done anything, Uh, but she didn't. And what- Had
0: she made that decision prior to the
2: hearing? No, she hadn't made that decision. And that's a good, you know, kind of illustration of, uh, I think, improper citing to evidence uh, an argument by Dr. Hoagland in an overzealous manner. There was earlier email before the hearing panel where uh, I think it came to her attention that there was someone where the program had concerns about policy violations. And she responded back in the email saying, yeah, it sounds like that's the right remedy here. She didn't know who it was, didn't know what the specifics were. All that she knew were that there were concerns. And she, she said that. The procedures here, the hearing procedures are important to distinguish from a court proceeding. It would be, I suggest, not feasible to have a courtroom-type of legal protection uh, examination of separation decisions like this. That's, that's you know, one is just not required by anything. Um, but it would, it would, it would really, it would just create a completely different right and really slow down processes slow down decision-making make probably make people reluctant to make decisions.
0: So if there was a there was a panel hearing That was limited to process. Is it possible to have a panel hearing? That's an actual hearing. That's not limited to process
2: I don't know and you, you know judge Collins I'm not sure exactly what the process limitation means I think it had I think a meaning that you or I may hear it as attorneys is a little bit different and probably that von Jacobs had in saying it. It's probably a little different than how Physicians untrained in the law may interpret it because there was no explanation given by her. Um, there's nothing in the procedures that says it should be limited. There's nothing in the procedures that says it shouldn't be limited. There's, there's, you know, the, that's simply something that occurred. What we do know from the statement of uh, Dr. Ravelli and the other the other physician that testified about what they considered is that they considered what happened. I think both of them said in their, their affidavits that Dr. Hoagland admitted the conduct that was problematic, did not appear to understand why it was problematic, um, and that Dr. Broder believed he had been deceitful with him. And that was was very important because the other principle I talked about earlier, the corollary under the ADA to academic deference is the principle from the Fourth circuit cases, which says a court doesn't sit as a super personnel department. It is not the proper role of a court to second-guess the judgment of a decision-maker if made in good faith. And there's no suggestion here that it wasn't in good faith. Let me address in my last four minutes another point that that opposing counsel raised, and that is uh, this notice obligation and uh, Dr. Kathleen Burry. First of all, there's no evidence in the record that Dr. Burry had any supervisory responsibility whatsoever because, indeed, she didn't. She was a fellow resident to Dr. Hoagland. She didn't have the ability to hire, fire, discharge, discipline, or make a recommendation on any of those things, and she never did. Her email response uh, to Dr. Broder doesn't do any of those things. Says, I hope you'll take these things into account. She's expressing things that she believes he doesn't know that that Dr. Hoagland was doing. And Dr. Broder didn't know that Dr. Hoagland was doing those things. That's what set us on the path Towards the separation decision. But Dr. Bury, um, uh, Dr. Bury not being a supervisor cannot trigger this cat's paw analysis liability. It can't be showing a pretext by someone who doesn't have supervisory authority or responsibility. On the notice question under the, the procedures, a notice is to be given under section 3.2, 3.3 if an active member of the medical staff relays a concern. It's undisputed that Dr. Burry was not an active member of the medical staff. She's an associate medical staff member. In fact, if you look at the top of the, that's in the testimony, it's also at the top of the corrective action hearing procedures, which apply to residents, uh, not physicians, as associate medical staff. The notice obligation under section 3.2, 3.3 is only triggered when it's an active medical staff. And that's because that's where a fellow, a a physician, a full-time physician at Duke says, hey, Dr. Broder, I think you got a problem with this resident.
3: So Dr. Murray was a chief resident. What's the difference between just a medical resident and the chief resident?
2: Yeah, Your Honor, I think it's kind of like an honorary thing. You're you're top of your class. But the, the responsibility they have is to schedule. That's why they got the notice here. The accommodation was a scheduling issue. So he sent it to the people. First of all, he said, I don't think it's an issue because we don't violate this five-day rule. Um, She gets it, she says, okay. Uh, One of the the chiefs says, yeah, not a problem whatsoever. Do that, I I don't think this violates anything on the schedule because we don't work like that. Uh, Dr. Burry says, not a problem at all. We'll do this, but here's some things you need to know. Because she looked at it and said, you know, if he has got a situation where he needs fatigue mitigation, for whatever reason, again, nobody has any idea what disability he has or hasn't. In fact, we haven't even challenged that in this case because nobody knew. They, we're dealing with healthcare people. They, they want to treat problems, not penalize people for them. So there, there's just no evidence of discrimination itself, which is the heart of the ADA claim. But Dr. Burry, uh, when she sent it, she was saying, These are things, you know, if he's going off and doing all these other things, maybe that's causing fatigue. So um, under the contract, it allows termination. It places the duties as written by Duke and as written by most schools on the trainee, not Duke. It's just the application of solid contract law is that there was a violation. The procedures are certainly not incorporated because we haven't used the language subject to explicitly making Duke responsible for following those policies and think about if if they are if they were expressly incorporated your honors in that, in that case you can't change those policies during the the, the reason employed their they're, they're policy reasons why unilaterally issued policies like this don't form a contractual commitment because it ties the employer, the businesses, the the college's hands to not changing those during the time. Things change in the operation of a business where you reissue policies. You reissue those. Well, then your hands are tied during that time because you've got a contractual commitment. There's sound reasons that support the rule that's been in effect in North Carolina uh, before I started practicing law. On the ADA claim, uh, on the pretext side, uh, comparators, there are none. (laughs) Talked about pretexts, there are, there are no comparators. There's nobody who has the constellation of performance problems and deficiencies. And I'm talking about his behaviors, not the clinical side of things, but his behaviors are not the same. Dressing up in a Halloween costume is not the same as renting your apartment to sleep in call rooms, taking the fatigue cab when you have no legitimate use for it uh, because you're renting out your car. Uh, those, those just aren't the same. I'll be glad to address address anything else, but my time is up. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Your Honors. With respect to the procedures, this won't change North Carolina law. There's a written contract, and it's an employment contract. Second, did Dr. Kuhn make that decision? Doc X 778 to 79 shows you that on March 24th, she decided the termination was proper and wanted to wait till the following week. We'll come back next week and decide. Uh, Regarding the rationale, a jury verdict was brought up. A jury verdict doesn't contain a rationale. If there's a law that requires a judge to have a written decision explaining That's something that requires reversal. And aptly, on the second issue, on the attorney's fees, um, and I'm blanking on the case, but the court said that you have to explain why an award is unjust or why defense was substantially justified. Otherwise, we have to reverse back. Same principle applies here. No actual rationale given. Um, The cap, the objective belief. Well, we we don't have to do that. We can. Well, then why include a link? Would the objective other party signing that employment agreement? Click that link and think, oh, well they don't have to do any of this. It's pretty detailed, but I guess they don't have to do any of this. What are the objective views of the party? Think about that. Um, The process. Um, I don't know what my notes say. The ADA, uh, sorry, with respect to the um, very specific allegations here, the allegations that were raised about the fatigue bus. Well, there was no evidence actually that he ever used the fatigue car. In fact, he said he used just a bus that everybody used whether or not that's ground for termination or whether that was one more thing thrown against the wall that has no bearing, that's where pretexts come from. That's what a jury is uniquely able to decide, not second guess, and I'm glad that counsel raised that. The second guessing come, notion comes from the DeJarnett case. It's in the uh, trial court hearing, and it's also in their brief. In 2019, the Fourth Circuit in Westmoreland said very clearly, that's a pretext plus predecision. that's not good law. And what it says is that we don't sit as super personnel divisions. What we do, though, examine, and what juries are uniquely able to examine, <clears throat> is whether the motive and intent behind the termination is really just a justification to to excuse discrimination. That's what the Westmoreland case says at footnote four, and I, I would encourage your honors to review that. Um, you know, when there was a comparison to this Halloween costume, so. Apparently, under Duke's mind, it's okay to wear a sexually explicit Halloween costume with your Duke insignia, but a video that was never shown to the public, no evidence was shown to the public, was immediately taken down, that's a violation that we can't can't comprehend. Could a jury believe that? Maybe. But a jury could also find that that's pretext, and that's where we're at. It's not asking this court to second guess. It's asking the jury to decide whether or not there's motive and intent of pretext here. This cat's paw argument. Um, The Mosier case very clearly says when both the parties submit conflicting evidence as to what the supervisor's role was, that's also an issue for a jury. And what Dr. Kuhn and Dr. Broder and Dr. Burry all testified, it wasn't just making a schedule. It was implementing the policies of the program, dealing with, quote, difficult um, residents. So that was something else that's evidence in the record that a jury could find pretext in that context. the, the reliance on panel's affidavits, which were given years after the fact, self-serving affidavits, sure, maybe, they, maybe a jury could believe those affidavits, but maybe a jury could believe that years later that was just trying to cover up discriminatory intent. So for all of those reasons, Your Honor, again, there was also this talk about deceit. Well, that was never one of the seven bases for termination, but they later tried to justify that. And I think the EEOC versus Sierra Roebuck's case says that, well, this later trumped up justification. um, It's true, and so therefore that, well, was it really true or was it not? Again, the court was questioning it. A jury could question it. That means it's a triable issue for a jury to decide. Um, If I may have one moment, of course, indulgence, Your Honor. I I think with that, Your Honors, what we have here, and uh, for all of the factual bases, whether he was driving for Uber or not, whether he was doing this, First of all, several of things were known, several of those things were false. Dr. Broder later testified that he couldn't answer whether somebody driving for Uber now would be kicked out of the program. He testified to that. Under the totality of the circumstances, considering all of those facts, where do we land? That's not for me to decide, and respectfully, I don't believe it's for your honors to decide. I think that's what a jury is designed to do. And with that, I submit Thank you for your time today. It's been an honor and pleasure arguing in front of you. Thank you. Thank you,
0: Thank you both for your excellent arguments. We will take this case under advisement.